Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Rabbi Dr. Moshe Miller, the author of a new book on how Rav Shamshan Rafal Hirsch, Rav Yaakov Ettlinger, Rav Ezreal Hildesheimer, and other great German Rabbanim viewed non-Jews in general and Christianity specifically. Rabbi Miller is Assistant Professor and Deputy Chair of the Department of Judaic Studies at Toro University's Lander College for Women, and also an Assistant Professor of Jewish History at Toro's Graduate School of Jewish Studies and Lander College for Men. Rabbi Miller, it's an honor to have you on the program. I know it's almost not fair to begin this interview by asking you about 30 lines in a book that contains approximately 10,000 lines, but that's what I'm going to do because those 30 lines are truly fascinating. You write about a certain Rabbi Eliyahu Soloveitchik who wrote a Hebrew parish on the books of Matthew and Mark in the New Testament. Why in the world would a grandson of Rabbi Chaim Voloshner and an uncle of the Beis HaLevi write such a parish, and why did Rosh Hashanah Rafal Hirsch evidently support this project? He was very mainstream, meaning one shouldn't think that because he wrote this commentary, that means that he must have been some type of a radical Jewish thinker who just happened to have the last name Soloveitchik. He was actually someone who had written a commentary on parts of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, and he received letters of brachas from pretty mainstream gedolim in Europe. As far as what brought him to write it, his own views, if I understand correctly, seem to be that there is a certain degree of mutual hostility. Obviously, anti-Semitism is a reality. Jews in Eastern Europe, where he's from, lived with it. Everyone knows about Christian anti-Semitism. But he also felt that there is a good deal of misunderstanding on the Jewish side with regard to Christianity, the sense that Christianity is purely and inherently a supersessionist religion whose sole purpose is just to negate Judaism, that's about the Zara, and that Christians are over there with the Zara, and that the New Testament is just uh, basically worth the garbage. He thought that this was a mistaken view, and so he developed an original take on the several books of the New Testament that he wrote commentaries on, and he himself writes that he's following in the tradition of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, the Ibitz. And the Revelation says this, and the Rabbi Yaakov already explained to us that, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't trying to found a new religion, per se, and he was just trying to spread the Shem Mitzvah Noach among the Masa Olam, and uh, there was no intention for it to be any kind of about the Zorah. And he writes very respectfully about Christianity, and he does say that he hopes that if people would study his work, and by people I mean both Christians and Jews, he says this openly, he says that he hopes that if people were to read the, his work, then the hatred that exists on both sides would, would diminish. He, he really is a forward-thinking figure who really believes that the purpose of creation is for all of mankind to serve Hashem in unison, not just for the Jews to serve Him and everyone else to serve us, but rather for all human beings to serve God. And he thinks that Christianity does a good job in getting you know large sections of mankind to, to get their devotion to God, perhaps somewhat imperfectly in terms of some theological views, but he doesn't dwell on those imperfections. He just dwells on the fact that they fundamentally believe in the God of the Bible, and they have the same moral code, roughly speaking, that Jews have. And he therefore just wants to generate a sense of appreciation for the Christian ethic on the part of Jews. And obviously he wants Christians to respect Judaism. Because he does cite, of course, extensively, as you would imagine, from the Gemara, from Chazal. He was a big time of He's the back of his own interpretations. And this letter from Rav Hirsch that you mentioned in the footnotes, that was specifically to, in support of this project to write these two Perushim, or it was just in general for support for him personally? Or... I think it's pretty clear that he is referring to those writings. I mean, Rav Tlavechik published Rav Hirsch's letter as a preface to those writings. I mean, he, ah, he so sure think, that uh, the letter was in reference to that. Ah, um, okay. That much is clear. As far as why Rav Hirsch expressed the view that, that he expressed 
that refers doesn't make clear. It's a very short letter. But again, you know, that's kind of what my book is about. You know, it's of a piece with the first's overall view. I've heard wasn't viewing it exactly from the same angle as how I just described Rav Slavichik. Rav Hirsch wasn't really involved in sort of interfaith dialogue the way Rav Slavichik, to some degree, was. There's no evidence of Rav Hirsch having met with Christian pastors or missionaries and that kind of thing. And Rav Hirsch certainly didn't write any, any of his own commentaries on the New Testament. And there's no evidence that he, that he spent much time reading the New Testament, although he surely knew the general ideas. But uh, Rav Hirsch, because he was so open to non-Jewish spirituality, the idea that you know every human being should really serve Hashem, that's a, the Jews, and he had respect for Christianity, despite all of his criticisms, and there are many, as I discussed in the book, but he still respected sincere Christian piety. So therefore, to me, I, I felt, as I wrote in the book, that it's not surprising that Ezdafka Rav Hirsch, rather than Rav Slavichik's East European colleagues, who would have known him better, Ezdafka Rav Hirsch seems to be the only strictly Orthodox rabbi who has a favorable view of, of these writings of his. Um, there, there's a couple other figures that also express their support for Rav Slavichik's um, project, but they're figures who we wouldn't really consider to be our, you know, strictly within the Orthodox world. The first seems to be the one strictly Orthodox rabbi who supported him, but it goes along with the first's entire, basically, tolerant approach to Christianity and to non-Jews in general. Right, so I also want to focus on another, I guess you could say, small detail in the book, but I think some of these small details, when you explain them, they get to larger ideas. So in the book you mentioned that our first once said that a from Jew should really rejoice when reading a positive depiction of Christmas Eve family meals. Why did our first think we should have that reaction when, when we read such a depiction? Okay, so to be more precise, he doesn't use the term rejoice. It comes from an essay from the journal Yeshurun in 1858. Professor Mark Shapiro, he published this essay in translation, Chakira, a couple of years ago. So listeners can certainly read the essay by going back to Chakira, I think 2019. But basically he says that you ought not to try to censor out when we read a textbook in a Jewish class, in a Jewish own school. You read a textbook that deals with general subjects, and it has some depiction of Christmas Eve, we ought not to feel a sense, oh, we have to censor that, take it out. He felt, no, what's the harm? I mean, it's, it's part of the world that we live in. There are Christians, they have holidays, they celebrate them, that's one of their holidays. And, and he does say that the Christian celebration is essentially uh, an echo, he doesn't use that exact term, um, but essentially it's an echo of Jewish rejoicing. In other words, if a Christian family is following Christianity as, as they should, the proper way, with the proper reverence, the proper mindset, obviously he's not referring to kind of, you know, we have the 21st century, everything is much more secular, much, everything much more consumeristic and so on. He was dealing with, you know, 19th century, mid-19th century Germany, people were more religious, more traditional family, family values, and so on. So what do you think? When, when the Christian family celebrates their holidays in the proper spirit of, of reverence for religion and for God, it is something that we should respect. We should see in that, as a, this is part of his overall sheet, though, we should see in that a victory for Judaism, as he himself writes, a victory that, you know, Judaism in its, as he calls, its daughter religions, by which he means Christianity and Islam, he includes both of these religions, but he focuses mostly on Christianity, because those are the people that he knew. You know, Judaism's daughter religions have succeeded in spreading a lot of core Jewish teachings to the wider world. So when you see religious Christians celebrating a festival, that should be a positive thing, rather than something that we have to, to shun. If I just could add to what you said, I think from my recall, because I did read this essay again a few days ago, I think Rav Hirsch was happy because one of Rav Hirsch's criticisms, I think, of Christianity in general is that it's almost divorced from life. You go to church on Sunday, but you're not bringing your religion into your regular daily physical life. And he felt, I think, Christmas Eve was one of the only times where they're around a family meal, you're eating food, physicality in a normal family setting, and you bring spirituality into a normal family setting, which I think he always thought was missing often from Christianity. Correct. Excellent, excellent word. You said just exactly so, really to the point. That's exactly right. He does have that view. He criticizes Christianity for its what he calls its otherworldliness. It's focused on the next life. It's focused on death and sinful, original sin, and so on. That's you know he feels that's a very misguided idea. 
And indeed, correct, the Christmas Eve celebration is a case in which uh, you have families come together, eating a meal, eating you know, uh, food, enjoying life, this worldly life, but with religious values, with a sense of, of religious purpose. Um, so bringing you know, religious values uh, into a family meal is indeed something that refers felt is positive. And uh, as Jews, we should see, to some degree, we should see kindred spirits. Again, this is quite, as Mark Shapiro points out in an earlier essay, this is quite a distance from the whole, you know, nittel nacht idea that, that night is a night when it's full of tumah and you have to make sure you, some of you don't, won't learn because you learn whatever, whatever the different theories are. But basically, refresh was very far away from that mindset. He felt that, listen, Christians are humans, they're created by Samuel Kim, and they serve the Creator in, the, in however imperfect the way they do, but they're still serving the Creator. And we shouldn't look at it and say, oh, these terrible people, we should see these as, you know, fellow religious people who are trying to serve the Creator. Maybe we should discuss for first in general, how do we get to a situation, because like you said, there are many from Jews who have very negative attitudes towards Christians. It's not clear from the Torah that we should have these views. And you would think that we would be very happy now that many nations are monotheistic nations. But instead of us being happy, a lot of us are very hostile towards it. How do you explain the difference between why our first is so positive, why other people are so negative? Okay, so the truth is the best way to get to that is to read the book, because I do try to develop that there. But I'll try to say the following uh, as concisely as I can. There is the halacha question of Christianity, whether it runs afoul of about the Zara. It's a very important question that can't be brushed aside. You know, the worship of the Trinity, the tripartite God, a God incarnated. These raise very serious halacha questions. There's no doubt from the point of view of halacha, including my first view of halacha, that for a Jew to worship as a Christian would be considered about the Zara, which David Berger has correctly translated as the worship of an entity as God, when that entity is in fact not God. The Zara doesn't just mean idolatry worship. So the worship of Jesus as, you know, the Son, and this is obviously, uh, for, for Jews, certainly is a problem. And then many would hope for Christians also it's a problem, because that is one of the seven Noah laws. But there are many postgim, which, which I discussed quite a few of those in the book, who felt that uh, this whole concept of Shittuf, that's only partnership, and B'nai Noah are not forbidden in Shittuf. There's, there's a long-standing view um, to that effect. It's based on what we showed him, St. Tospis and the Rush and Ben Yerucham, and many of them discussed that at length. And uh, there's a view that Christian... What's that? And the Ramah also, right? The Ramah does say this in uh, two, in two places. He says it in Archaim Kufnan Vav, and he also says in in, in the Archim Moshe, he says in Yerodei Kufnan Aleph. So uh, there's definitely a basis for the, you'll say, the tolerant view of Allah towards Christianity as a non, about the Zara religion as far as non-Jews are concerned. You know, there's basically the idea that there is a different standard of the Zara for non-Jews than for Jews, that non-Jews don't have to have as strict a form of monotheism as Jews do. So but there's that one issue of Allah. And then you have the separate and Another overlapping question of the history, the history of, of Christian persecution of Jews. The whole Jewish Christian encounter during the Middle Ages wasn't a very pleasant one. The most extreme moments, of course, you know, the Crusades and Black Death and the mass killings associated with that, Spanish Inquisition expulsion. The most extreme moments were moments where Jewish blood was shed uh, like water, you know, uh, often in the name of Christianity, in the name of Jesus. So the first thing to note is that uh, they were first lived in a very different century. I think it is fair to say that probably the single um, most peaceful, the single uh, most bloodless century of Jewish life post-Corporate bias was the 19th century, the century in which I first lived. There were occasional pogroms, mainly at the beginning of that century and at the end of the century, but uh, the very center of the century, you know, 1830s to the 1870s, roughly speaking, it's pretty peaceful as far as the standards of Jewish life is, is concerned. So at first, basically, that's when he worked, that's when he wrote, that's when he developed the So uh, he did consider his times to be more peaceful time than previous centuries had been. Uh, that wasn't only reformed thinkers, who believed that, or first, is Rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, the great Arachanair on the Gemara. Everyone learns the Sefer Arachanair. He also writes that our century is a century of uh, greater peace, 
diminishing of persecution, there was a general sense. It kind of made sense to think that way because that, that, that is how Jews were treated then. Uh, there's no way to expect that they would have foreseen uh, all the dramatic changes that took place over the end of that century and, of course, the first 35 years of the 20th century with uh, ultimately the rise of Nazis. And we cannot view, as I stress, we cannot view all of German Jewish history through the prism of the Holocaust. The Holocaust came later. It didn't have to happen. It did, but it didn't have to. There were different things that could have happened had different philosophies. Had Lessing or Schiller been the heroes of Germany rather than uh, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, then <laughs> uh, maybe things would have looked different. But going back to your question, the French were living in much more peaceful times, as was his contemporary, Rabbi the Olsevetschik, whom we just discussed. So these are Rabbanim who live in times when Christian persecution of Jews was very minimal. And it may even have seemed like it was pretty much a thing of the past. Although Rabbi Hirsch did, in a famous essay about Purim, he does talk about, it. he thinks that the, there may yet be some persecution of Jews, some violent persecution of Jews coming from Germany. He even predicts the possibility of a, a successor for Haman to arise in Germany, which is actually what happened with Hitler. But the general sense was that persecution uh, was not a major issue. And the Alachic issue was basically solved because the first Rebbe, the Archoner, had the view that, that Shidduch was permissible for non-Jews. And so Christianity would not be able to do for non-Jews. That would be a precious Halachic view. And then as far as the overall outlook on these people, well, these people are not pursuing us. Many of them are looking to grant us emancipation. They want to grant us rights. And that wasn't seen as a scheme. And the difference in context, not only between the first century and previous centuries, needs to be underscored. But even the difference in context between Afrish's 19th century context and his East European contemporaries, the Jews who lived in the Russian Empire, Afrish is almost exactly contemporary, was the base of Levy. The base of Levy had a much more negative view of contemporary Christians. He has several passages, which I discussed in the book, that talks about how the whole thing is basically a conspiracy. They, they want to lessen the burden on us so they can get us to be more like them, they get us to become more Christian. And one has to keep in mind that the conversionary programs of some of the Russian czars, especially Nicholas I, conscription, Cantonist system, these are key contexts for the life of someone like the base Levy. So he would see his Christian contemporaries as, yeah, they're willing to lessen the burden a little bit, but they really want us to crucify ourselves and ultimately convert. That just wasn't the program of the leaders in the German states, the leaders of the states in Central Western Europe in the 19th century weren't trying to convert the Jews to Christianity. The entire experience of a Jew living in Eastern Europe and Russia would have been very different than the experience of someone like Rapersh. So Rapersh was living in times in which a more a positive reassessment of Christianity was possible. And I have to note just briefly that the predecessor for Rav Hirsch was Rav Yaakov Emden. Rav Emden did live in the, the German lands in the previous century, and emancipation wasn't yet. Rav Emden passed away in 1776, just one decade before first emancipatory edicts. But persecution of Jews was certainly a lot lower than it had been in previous centuries. So Rav Hirsch had at his disposal the writings of Gedolim from before him, who had already said nice things about Christians. There were many Gedolim, two, two or three hundred years or more, before Hirsch's time, who had said nice things about Christians and about Christianity. So Hirsch was really drawing upon a tradition that was already there. It was just that Hirsch's writing style was, was different. He wrote very wordy essays in German, but yeah. uh, he was definitely drawing upon precedent. And he just felt that we as Jews should, we should see in the spread of Christianity. He already says in Chorah, from the first work that he wrote, second work that he published, Chorah, before writing letters, 1830, his young Rav, he already says there that we should see the spread of Christianity to much of the world. We should rejoice at that. He doesn't say Christianity by name, but he says that in fact a doctrine has been taught, has been spread, meaning Christianity, in America and Europe and parts of Asia and Africa, which teaches its followers to keep the seven Ochai laws. He says we should rejoice in this fact that this doctrine has spread. So why are we rejoicing? We're rejoicing because that is the Jewish vocation. We are concerned not just with our own people, and not only are we concerned with the physical well-being of others that we want non-Jews to be well and you know they shouldn't suffer physically, but we are concerned about the spiritual well-being of non-Jews. Because Hashem wants everyone to serve him. And that's the whole idea of being an Orgoyim and being a Mechaz Kohanim, the famous interpretation of a Mechaz Kohanim, but with Ramam and the Sparno, to be a priestly nation, that means that we're the priests, the rest of the nations are the lay people, 
priests always care about their their lay people. You can't be a priest if you don't care about your flock. That's kind of by definition. So we're the priestly nation and we care about everyone else. We want everyone else to become more knowledgeable and more religious. So our first thought, look, Christianity is a great, definitely flawed, flawed but still a great vehicle to spread some of the core teachings about God, about piety, about leading a moral life, leading a pure family life, having biblical values, respecting the Bible, and so on. These are things that Christianity taught and still teaches to this day, at least more traditionalist forms. So he felt that this is something that we should recognize. And indeed, it's a, quite a development from the medieval Christian, uh, Jewish Christian moment. Right. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate it, because if we were living 3,000 years ago, and we were taught that, you know, there's a mission from Hashem, that, that all of Hashem's ideas will spread to the world, we would think, how's that possible? There's millions and millions and millions of people out there. We're in a small country in the middle of the Middle East. And yes, we have these stones that Yoshua wrote the Torah on the line. But how many people are going to see the stones? And yes, some non-Jews could come for Sukkot to bring up Karbanos. But again, how many are going to come at, at the end? So you would think, how is this actually possible that all of our ideas that Hashem put in the Torah will spread to the rest of the world? And it happens to a certain extent. Obviously not to the full extent. But to a certain extent, a lot of it happened, like you said, through Christianity and later through Islam. It's a miracle if you actually really think about it. It certainly is. I mean, you know, there's a well-known passage of the Ramah, you know, towards the end of Malachim, where he talks about that. On one hand, he says some pretty critical things about Christianity, but he also says that, uh, you know, Hashem orchestrated this. He says, yeah, Rav says Hashem orchestrated the emergence of Christianity and Islam to, to fill the world with knowledge about these core concepts, about mitzvahs, about Mashiach, even though they misinterpret some of these things, but still, they're, they're still knowledgeable about these things, and therefore when Mashiach comes, they will be more familiar with these concepts. You know, if Mashiach were to come to a pagan world, people will be totally ignorant, totally ignorant about any of these concepts. It would be like teaching someone who doesn't know how to read any language how to read some sophisticated version of a particular language. Whereas now that Christianity and Islam have spread, you're taking people that already know the text, can read the text, and you have to explain them, well, the way you explain that, possibly, it's, that's not correct. It, it means like this. But, you know, we have a common language, Hamish Shprach. I just think about the most recent example of the late Rabbi Sachs, who, as is known, he would learn Chumash with Tony Blair, who was then Prime Minister. Blair asked him to teach him the Chumash. And you know, it goes back to the days when the Serrano would learn with Reuchlin, at least, at least taught Reuchlin in Hebrew, at the very least. So Rabbi Sachs, in that respect, even if may, maybe he may have had some other differences with our person on some other issues, but certainly in that regard, they're very kindred spirits. I mean, Rabbi Sachs also believed that we should try to spread core Jewish teachings to the wider world. And uh, if we can uh, talk to religious Christians about the Bible, then great. More, more well, I had a conversation with Rabbi Sachs like maybe five, ten years ago, and I mentioned your PhD thesis to him, and unfortunately he didn't live to see the publication of the book, but he said he was looking forward to the book, actually, when I told him. I feel bad. It's a great loss to the Jewish world, a very great loss. He has no replacement, but uh, we still have his books, so we can still learn those. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about Rav Yaakov Emden, because you mentioned, I don't think you go into great detail in the book, but you say Rav Yaakov Emden was actually even more enthusiastic about Christianity than Reverse was. Could you give an example or two of what Rav Yaakov Emden said about Christianity? Yeah, I mean, the area went back and exceeds the first is the way he describes Jesus and even Paul. Um, both of these figures, we'll just say, in your typical from Orthodox Jewish home, are not. People don't usually have a very favorable view of these people. If you mention their names, whatever reaction you get, we don't have to say, and I'm recording what people might say, but the reaction would likely not be a favorable one. Uh, Remnon had a very favorable view of both Jesus and Paul. His disciple, he points out that he was he himself was a Talmud of Rebbe Hazakain, and he was knowledgeable, he was scholarly, he knew halacha. And basically, Remnon goes on to praise how Jesus was not trying to, he says this openly, he says, the Abbas, the great Abbas, whom we all learn, is said in the Maruktia, and the Shilas Abbas, and the Chubas, and the Siddur, you know, all the Swaram that we learn. He also wrote these things in, in different places. He discusses this issue, and he says that Jesus was not trying to found a new religion, but rather he was trying to spread observance of the seven Lord laws among the nations. He wanted Klai to continue to keep Torah mitzvahs, 
and he wanted the other nations to keep the seven Ochre. And later on, it, it was turned into more of a new religion with new ideas in the realm of theology. But he says that Jesus himself really wasn't trying to do that. So at first, he doesn't really say such great praise of Jesus. I, I've referred to the one place where he refers to Jesus having brought the world. At first, at first, he does talk about place in his Chumash commentary. That thing, my name, but he's referring to Jesus uh, having brought the world a few sparks of light borrowed from the man Moses. That's how he says, a few sparks of light borrowed from the man Moses. Meaning borrowed from Moshe, borrowed from Chumash. He brought the world a few core ideas that were inspiring to the world, and the world uh, ultimately is to the benefit. You know, is all for the better for that. But the Abbot does go. Uh, he's much more effusive in, in singling out Jesus by name and praising him as being a righteous person, and and he compares him to Tanoi. Which you know that, that's a strong thing to say, and then he prays. You know, there one easily the same. say, well, Jesus, maybe we should see look unfavorably. Paul, perhaps, was that that figure who came, kind of came along and distorted things and and turned the tide, you know, against maybe what Jesus maybe had had been trying to do. And then even seemed to think that even Paul was uh, had good intentions. It's only later generations it was you know, misunderstood. So in that respect, he's very effusive. I mean, really, Evan and Rabbi Salvation, whom we discussed before, they were, were very like-minded figures. They didn't just respect the morality of their contemporary Christians. They didn't just respect the general outlook about God or about the world that Christianity preaches, but they specifically felt that Jesus was a greatest person and a person that we should respect and so on. So, you know, in that respect, Walter Evan and Rabbi Salvation they do go further in Refresh. Refresh's writings may resonate more in some ways with an Orthodox readership that would be taken aback to see such praise about Jesus. But to say that Christianity as a whole is a religion that teaches morality, I mean, isn't it obvious? I mean, just look at the news. I mean, look at the kind of morality that's out there in the 21st century America, you know, the secular version of values. And look how, how eroded everything has become when people move away from religion. And they're not grounded in religion. So uh, I think right now it's not especially, it's almost like a person was prophetic. It's almost like he was saying, like, if you want to find allies, you want to find people in the non-Jewish world who have the same values that we have, look to religious Christians. I mean, you're not going to find that among secular people, you're not going to find them atheists, you're not going to find them among communists. You're going to find them among religious Christians. I think one reason, and this is my interpretation, one reason perhaps so many Western European rabbis took a softer stance towards non-Jews than their Eastern European counterparts is because the non-Jews that Western European rabbis knew didn't seem all that bad versus the non-Jews are familiar to Eastern European Jews were often, I'm, I'm obviously generalizing here and stereotyping, but often in, in Eastern Europe, maybe they were drunk, boorish peasants. The non-Jews of Western Europe, though, in contrast, seemed educated and kind, etc. Okay, I think many of us have, perhaps have the same reaction today. We all know many decent non-Jews, and it's hard for us to imagine that some of the Gemara's harsh statements about Goyim or Ovdei Kachovim Mazalos would apply to them. And I think many Western European writers may have been thinking the same thing, which led them to conclude, and we can discuss this also, that the Gemara's harsh statements about non-Jews actually must only apply to pagans, not to the monotheistic, ethical non-Jews of contemporary times. And so that leads me to my next question, which is, even if you take that position that the Gemara statements apply only to pagans, not to monotheistic Christians, do they apply to the ancient Greeks? Because the Greeks were pagans. Maybe they weren't primitive pagans, but they still were pagans. And as the statements of the Gemara do apply to the Greeks, aren't we left with the same basic question, which many people have, which is how could the Gemara tell us to treat seemingly decent culture people, sometimes in such an unkind fashion? It's a great question. And obviously, I'm not, I myself am certainly not suited to give any definitive answer to it. I can only give some tentative reactions to the question. Um, I think it's very tempting to say that, uh, yeah, the Greeks would be excluded from any critical remarks about non-Jews because they're, they're more civilized. But I don't think it's as simple as that, because I think that, as I know in the book, I think that uh, a lot of Refresh's ideas do go back to the views of the Miri, and as I discussed, he didn't have access to the full commentary, but he did have access to those two key passages on Masakabobakama that the Rashid Mugbetsa cites, 
this notion of almost like Guru Madarki Adosos, that nations are disciplined by the ways of religion. And Barfish seemed pretty clear to have been influenced by that general approach, the idea that non-Jews, meaning Christianity and Islam, are, are therefore more, more upright, more civilized. But the religions have to be the religions that believe in some form of monotheism. I mean, that's Mimi's terminology that the exact text of Barfish didn't read, but this notion of, no, he did. Maybe says um, that Goyim will have a notion of Elokus, Ali Tzad. Any notion of the divinity, Ali Tzad. Um, even though their faith is far from our faith, Mimi says such Gentiles are not included in any kind of discriminatory legislation. That's Mimi's very forthright assertion. And so the ancient Greeks really weren't monotheistic. I mean, you know, uh, in the sense that we understand that they really weren't worshiping. One creator, they weren't worshiping the creator of the world who is the sole source of all power. And then also, maybe also believing that he has a son, but rather there were various deities in the Greek pantheon, right? So it's tempting to say that, if, you know, uh, if a more upstanding, decent Greek person, you know, shouldn't be discriminated against, and, and indeed they should be treated as, as, as humans, they're some of them, you can't steal from them, you can't harm them, you can't do anything bad. Everyone agrees that any non-Jew, even the most pagan non-Jew, you can't hurt them, you can't steal from them, you have to be honest, you can't trick them. This applies to everyone, it doesn't matter their belief system. But to get to the next level of saying that they're like our brethren, they're like, you know, we, were, we have similar goals, we're, we're achieving the same things, it's much harder to say that uh, unless there's some shared belief system. So I think, in my view, and there's a lot of scholarship about Me'iri, but it does directly relate to your question, any attempt to interpret the Me'iri as if the Me'iri was just saying that the only thing that matters for the Me'iri is to be decent in your lifestyle, but that your belief system is irrelevant, I think it's not correct. Me'iri does talk about Kedur Medarche Dosos, he talks about belief in the Opus, Ali Zetzad, there is some aspect to uh, some notion of monotheism. The Miri understood that monotheistic Gentiles are closer to us than our polytheists. And our first, I think, clearly subscribes to that view. So as far as how we should treat Greeks, treat them treat them like people. Treat them, don't do anything uh, unethical toward them. But do they have the same level that these more upstanding uh, non-Jews? You know, Miri is practically treating um, Christian contemporaries almost like Gary Tosha. And this is a view that our first, to a certain degree, endorses. Um, I, I don't think it can really apply to Greeks insofar as they were polytheists. I, mean, I guess it gets to the heart of why Avodah Zarah is so bad, because Refresh often talks about why the Avodah Zarah is so bad. And part of what he explains is he thinks that if, without belief in God, you're basically almost like a terrified animal. You're always scared of the gods. You never know what the next moment is going to bring. So you're constantly trying to appease them and giving them gifts. You might even sacrifice your own son to give them gifts. I think one of the harshest statements the Gemara thing says about pagans is that I think if there's a pagan in a pit and he needs your help, it says you don't push him in the pit, but if he's in the pit, you don't help him out. You he's going to die. Sorry? So that means if you're passing by 2,500 years ago and there's, you know, Aristotle sitting there in that pit, you don't help him out. So then the question is, why is the photozoa so, so, so terrible that Hashem would tell us to do such a thing? I mean, in the 19th century, you see it. Refresh isn't the only one. Shadal, who was a contemporary of his, they corresponded from Italy, and Refresh, they, they didn't agree on number of things, but they both did stress this idea that, you know, adultery is so bad because it leads people to morality, to barbarism, they're always vying for the God's affections. You look at, the, you know, the famous Chumash commentary of Chief Rabbi Hurts, the British Chief Rabbi, he always makes that point about the paganism leading you to uh, barbarity because of the belief in, in multiple deities. So I think some of you, they, they did uh, accept that premise. They were not followers of Rambam, who stressed intellectual perfection. So, yes, figures like Refersh and his contemporaries, they did connect Avodah to the kind of lifestyle and the barbarism that Ovde Avodah would follow, but it doesn't mean that's the sole issue. I mean, there is a prohibition simply on giving allegiance to entities that don't deserve it. I mean, Hashem made the world, and to go and give allegiance to foreign gods that have no reality at all, and no connection to reality, you just give them your allegiance, that's a betrayal. This is basically how Hashem explained that they have Kel Kano. 
which he probably was alerted to Christian criticism, you know, God is the vengeful God. The Christians say their God is more loving. The God of the Old, the old Testament is vengeful. But first, implicitly addresses that without citing my name, but he addresses that. Kel Connery says that the God who demands our allegiance. It doesn't mean that he's vengeful, he's going to strike you down with both of thunder, but it means that he demands our allegiance. And, uh, you know, to be faithful to God means to give allegiance to, to he who deserves our allegiance and not to entities that don't deserve it. So, yeah, on the one hand, Hirschen, like-minded contemporaries of his, did draw a connection between pagan belief and barbarism, but it wasn't solely barbarism. It, it, the belief itself was a problem. So, you know, beliefs that were openly polytheistic would have been seen as, as being a big issue. To be fair to the ancient Greeks, I think there are a lot of people who think that at least the, the intellectual class didn't necessarily believe in all the gods they claimed to be having their festivals to. Maybe they just had this part of a culture, not that they really believed in that. But even if they didn't really believe in that, they certainly didn't believe in the one god all right, let me move on. Many historians, you among them, a little bit different than other people, but you still do this a little bit. Talk about the German Jews doing certain things, saying nice things about non-Jews, building nice synagogues, because they wanted the Germans to give them equal rights under the law. And that always bothered me a little bit. Number one, I don't think there's very much evidence for it. Number two, it makes German Jews sound like needy, groveling children. And I always thought like it's possible the Jews were doing all these things because they believed in it, not because they just wanted equal rights. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because you discussed this in your book. So yeah, it's a great question, and it really does cut to the heart of my thesis. The first thing that I have to stress is that the views of the Spadolim that I examined in the book, these were their absolutely sincere convictions without any question whatsoever. However, what I do argue is that one has to read these texts within their context, but like anything else. You read the origins of Hasidism, you read the writings of the Valangoyen, the Chaim Lajner, the Muslim movement, all these things represent the true, sincere conviction of the great rabbis who propounded the views which they propounded. But they still propounded their views within a specific context. And so what I discuss is that there was a general sense, both among uh, open anti-Semites, uh, opponents of emancipation, and but even among supporters of emancipation, like, like Friedrich Schirmacher and, and Hegel, there was a sort of a common thread, a common theme, which is this critique that Judaism was tribalistic. Jews only care about their own kind. They just don't care about, you know, the claim. They care only fellow Jews, and that's it. So the basic idea here, and to make it very simple, is that these Rabbanim, these Gedolim, felt that it would simply be hypocritical. We would be hypocrites if we were to, on the one hand, say, yes, we appreciate the, the civic uh, equality that you're granting us, which is what emancipation is. We appreciate it. We want to be active and loyal citizens in, in Germany. We want to participate in the civic life around us. We want you to finally treat us like equal human beings, which you haven't done for all these centuries till now. But when we look at you, you know, a guy is still, you know, you can't save him when he's drowning and, you know, and all, all these but various statements that would seem to deny certain basic, what we would consider now basic rights to non-Jews. The Rabbanon felt it would be hypocritical if we simply went with the premise that, yes, these things apply in full force to these people around us. Maybe we'll be nice to them and, you know, we'll publicly we'll talk nicely, but deep down we'll still feel that these things are applicable. They felt this was, this was absolutely wrong. And therefore they made a point of developing and projecting and conveying a vision of Judaism that was truly universal. So it was definitely their deep-seated conviction, but it would seem to me that the, the context, the emancipation struggle, is a key piece of this, just as the conditions of early to mid-18th century East European Jewry are key to understanding why the Baal Shem and his movement of Chathidim emerged when and where it did. Right? So, 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 so to hear the, the striking universalism of a person and his colleagues should be seen within its own context. Okay, so before we end the interview, I have to ask, because this always comes up, whenever you talk about nicer things about non-Jews, People always say, what do you mean there's a statement in Chazal, Esav, Sonei, Liakov? How could you say that non-Jews could like Jews or Christians could be our, almost our brethren? Esav, Sonei, Liakov, this is pre-programmed. I, I never 
thought it made too much sense because if Hashem wants us to spread the Torah to the world, the Torah values, it doesn't make any sense that he would pre-program the people we're supposed to spread these values to, to hate us. But nonetheless, this is what people say. So how, how do you respond? It all comes down to the statement of the Chazal and the Pasuk and Bracious, when Esau kisses Yaakov after having been separated from him for a very long time. And the Chazal note that the, on the word by Yishakeo that he kissed him, the word is dotted. So there's the same Chazal, the Chazal say, it's actually Shem Barichai, who says uh, the way that Rashi quotes it, Halacha hi biyadua, she'esav sonei Yaakov. So he said, so at that moment, even though it's Halacha biyadua, that Esav hates Yaakov, at that moment he still kissed him wholeheartedly. So this is a statement that everyone who doesn't know anything about anything, Chazal doesn't know anything at all, this they know, right? So basically, to make a long story short, Two points. The first thing is that the actual text of the Chazal, as we know now from more correct, more accurate manuscripts, the actual text of the Chazal don't say halacha biyadua. In fact, it would be rather odd if they did say that because you don't find this lashon anywhere else in all of rabbinic literature. Halacha biyadua, either it's halacha or there's something biyadua, but halacha biyadua is something we don't find. So the actual text is simply halo biyadua. Halo biyadua. Is it, is it not known? Isn't it known that Esav hates Yaakov? And uh, that's actually what Chazal said. They, they weren't talking about halacha. Yeah, once you have the word halacha, that, that gives rise to all kinds of interpretations. Why they call it halacha? Well, and must make it an immutable fact of the essence of Gentiles, they hate you. I assume the of means all Gentiles. But the point is that Chazal didn't mean to. <laughs> Chazal said, Halo biyadua, not halacha. So we don't have to give any shatlach or any drushas to explain why it says halacha. It's not. So Chazal just said that Esav hated Yaakov. And in context, it's talking about Esav, not all Esav's descendants, but just Esav. As Adersin correctly notes, that uh, you, you don't find this interpretation in any classical source. Not Chazal themselves, not Rishonim, not in the earlier Achronim either. So the Chazal, aren't, A, they're not saying and B, they're not saying that all of Esau's descendants hate Yaakov. They're talking about Esau now, insofar. Yeah. insofar. Yeah. Just if I come up to you quickly, I think he said the first time he could find it, it was like maybe in some safe for 200 years ago. The first time that someone uses this statement to refer to all Gentiles as opposed to just Esau specifically. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. But I think the key issue is that the Chazal did not state, nor did they intend to state, that Gentiles, that non-Jews, that means if you're born as a human and you're not Jewish, you're born, you know, automatically from birth, you're hardwired to hate old Jews, it's just part of your DNA. You kind of, you can maybe transcend it to some degree, but basically, you're hardwired that way. This is not sourced anywhere. It's not a view of the Chazal, it's not a view of Rishonim, Achonim. There are several great rabbis who were Holocaust survivors who did advance this thesis. There is a view. That said, the great Rav Yosef Hankin, that's how the great you know, postgame in America, he uh, reacted strongly against such an interpretation. I can just give you a few of his words. He says, often clearly, like a grave sin on the part of those people who always repeat over that the Ace of Yaakov and and the guy made us, and it's just an immutable fact, and we just have to accept that, and they're always going to hate us. He says it's not true. In fact, his option is, he says, Zen neged ho-emes, neged chazal, la-mikra. He says it's against reality, it's against truth, it's against chazal, and it's against Tanakh, it's against the Torah itself. So he says it's not true. He said, Esav himself, he says, didn't always say that, but we see in this narrative, there are times when he was willing to be compassionate. Esav himself could be nice. And says so, that the Pentagon is all the worst of race of descendants. Certainly, they can certainly be nice. He said, the main thing is that we should be nice to them. He says, <laughs> If we're nice to them, we give them respect, and we say, We like you, we love you, we're friendly to you, they will be friendly to us, they'll be nice to us as well. So, this is almost in a sense is almost like the underlying assumption of the rabbis that I discussed in my book. The idea here, and Sir Hennigan is saying as well, is that we should just try to be ethical, upright people. All of our neighbors, Jews and Gentiles alike, and there always will be those that hate us, the ones that are very extreme in their hatred, probably can't change their opinion. But the, the majority of, we'll say, undecided, the majority of undecided out there uh, could be fine, upstanding people. We're just nice to them, they'll be nice to us. And there's no Torah uh, claim or any rabbinic text that, that would lead us to think differently.
Ralph Hank was one of the biggest postmen in America. He, he lived through the Holocaust himself, I think, or no? He did. I mean, that, that's why I noted him. Even, even though there were several prominent Rabbanim who lived through the Holocaust, who took the other view, and they found it somehow, you know, immutable fact. But Repentkin uh, reacted strongly against that view. He thought that was a mistaken interpretation. And he wasn't even going with the new text. He, he probably wasn't aware that the real text is actually as opposed to Halacha. Even, even with the text of Halacha, which is odd, and why they call Halacha, even so, he said that it doesn't mean that it can't change. Asaph himself, he said, but sometimes it can be kind. So, so right. it and, certainly makes sense. And very quickly, the Gemara about Sina Bal Olam with Sinai, how does that fit in here? Yeah, I mean, that's a very profound statement. I mean, I think that, in my, my, my own humble view, I would say that probably what Chazal is saying over there is that the gift of the Torah to Klai Yisrael is obviously a very special and unique gift. Ultimately, its purpose is to enlighten the world. But it is a very special, precious gift with, with, which Hashem entrusted with the Jewish people. And it does lead to a certain degree of kinah, of certain jealousy. Jealousy, of course, morphs itself into hatred, and we do see that throughout history, and again, one can connect that to issues like success of the Jews, whatever Sachs talks about that, you know, Jewish people are successful, against the odds, that leads to more jealousy, more hatred. So I think Chazal was just saying over there that there's something unique about, there. I mean, definitely is, there, there is something unique about Jew hatred, it's kind of distinct from other hatreds, we see what it led to, it led to the Holocaust, it led to things that other kinds of hatreds have not led to. So Chazal was saying that there's some unique type of hatred, and it's connected to the special gift that we got, and a certain degree of jealousy that others have on account of that. But it doesn't mean to say, nor has ever understood it, it to mean that uh, every Gentile is born with an immutable hatred. Right, and again, I hate to repeat myself, but it does go back, I think, also, if you do believe, like you said, the Rambam, the Sephardim, and all these people, that we have a mission to be an Arla Goyim, or to be the priest of the world, Hashem wouldn't pre- it doesn't make any sense for him to pre-program the students to hate the teacher in advance. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think probably, for the purpose of pure intellectual honesty over here, I think that that interpretation of Klai Yisrael as a priestly nation, uh, which is deeply rooted in its classical sources, the Rambam's interpretation of that Pasuk, the Sephardim, and others, and of course, the, the Argoyim, which is the Pasuk in Shaya, uh, the Radak on that passage and other impression. So it's definitely a classical idea, uh, not a modern invention. That said, there are those who uh, who don't subscribe to that. There are people that you can speak to plenty of Orthodox Jews who will not agree with you, uh, or me, <laughs> in our claim that our main role, or, or even one of our main roles is to be the priestly nation, the line of the world. There are people who will say that, you know, uh, Jews are concerned about Jews, concerned for our own kind, our own people, and Hashem gave us a special gift. That's a terror. We love him, he loves us. It's like a love affair between Hashem and the Klai Yisrael. That, that's really all that counts. The rest of the world it doesn't really matter. They're not really that important. It's Klai Yisrael and Hashem. There definitely are people who have such a view, and it is in fact against such an outlook that the rabbis that I examined in my book reacted, and uh, it developed a much more, much more universal vision of Judaism in strong opposition to that narrow tribalistic outlook, and uh, that is the vision that uh, that I discussed at great length, and it is indeed rooted in, in classical sources. Right. I know you have to go, but it's interesting because even among those people who do believe in the mission's claim, like Rav Hirsch, I don't think he thought we should be actively propagating Torah values. I think he thought it was more like a passive thing. If we live a godly, ideal life, people around us will eventually notice and it will seep out. Yeah, correct. No, absolutely. I do discuss that in the book. You know, I, I said Professor Morkai Bori, who was, he was a senior Hirsch scholar, and he already noted this already years ago, that the reverse's vision of mission to the nations is essentially a passive mission, the mission of leading a Torah lifestyle and uh, inspiring people around you in, in a subtle way, not actively preaching on the streets, uh, holding up signs, saying the apocalypse is coming, but rather but leading a lifestyle in which people uh, you know, respect you. And, and again, that's why for, for Rev Hirsch, and I think for every, it, this should be the case for everyone, I'll just say it by my own view, uh, that's why for a person, what I think it should, should be everyone's view, Kish Hashem and Hashem cannot just then be kind of footnotes to do this. Like, oh, we have to do mitzvot and keep kosher. And by the way, don't make Kish No, that's, that's core. That's absolutely central to the vocation of a Jew. You interact with the wider world. You want to absolutely show people how Yashar we are. We are, in fact, Kaladas Yashar. We are the upright 
a nation, our bright community, everything we do is in the highest level of ethics, highest standards. So that's key. That's absolutely key. So um, it's, that's definitely something that Reverse talks about. Uh, and again, there's also the other piece of that theory, the mission theory, according to which the other religions play a role as well. As flawed as some aspects of their theologies might be, and as much persecution as you've experienced, and some of you even still do experience, from some of those religions that have developed on the basis of Jerusalem, what the first call is the daughter of religions, namely Christianity and Islam, nevertheless, there's still a core of truth, in fact, a core of many truths that those religions do preach, and if they just understand and preach their religions the proper way, there are many upright Christians and Muslims who do so, if they just do that, then they are, in fact, carrying out the vocation of Judaism to the wider world. Thank you so very much. I really encourage all listeners to buy your book. I'm going to put a link to it in the episode description. And Yashkuach in the book. And Hatzalcha. Thank you very much for offering me this opportunity to discuss it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. That does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.